let me rock into this. So, all right, a little fake drum roll. I always got to do it. And plus, it makes a little thing on the screen so we know where to cut it. <laughs> all right. Yes, today we welcome Danny Barrows, president and founder of Hitscope Music Group and Hitscope Records. We were just chatting about a previous Mike podcast that we did before the rebrand, and it was very much so in this weird transitional period post-pandemic, what's going to happen, making a lot of predictions and stuff like that. And we weren't too far off, but me and him both were a little pessimistic, right? But I come from a, the land of being a booking agent and a touring artist, and this cat runs the show, right? He works directly with artists. He's originally from Boston, a graduate from a place called Berkeley College of Music, and has all sorts of certifications, has been featured in incredible press. And one of the things that we're going to talk about are the incredible organizations that he's a part of that before we chatted initially, I didn't even know about. I didn't know about a lot of these like official guilds and organizations and types of certifications that you can do to let the movers and shakers in the industry really know you mean business. So you, you've taught me a lot in our conversations. And I know that the A-list artists you've worked with, such as Ed Sheeran, Chris Brown, Steve Aoki, and T-Pain, they had a good time working with you too. So welcome to the Mike Podcast, brother. Thank you, man. Thank you. Good to, good to I, be here again. Yes, again. And it's almost like the first one didn't happen because we did this rebrand. We had to chart, brother, and we got on the charts. We were 23 overall for a little while there, and we are building oh, yeah. back. Yeah, it's exciting, man. I got to knock out some super millionaire funded podcasts. And this was all just me, my friends, family, colleagues, all the 100, 200 artists along the way of our journey that we've helped and got almost 100 five star reviews in the first week. It was well pretty. Deserved. Yeah, pretty awesome, man. And one thing that I love about our chats is that though you are the top dog at these joints, you have such a love for the art that is untainted by this money grubbing sort of industry that we seem to be surrounded by. And now you got to pay your bills, but yeah. you seem to put the artist first. And can you walk me through uh, why that's so important to you and how you do that? Yeah, for a long time that I've been in this industry, I've met so many people that really only care about making a quick buck. And when you look at like these playlisting companies and these music experts that are offering consultations and stuff that have no background, it's scary because I've seen so many artists that have been steered in the wrong direction that have been given very bad advice and have paid consultants hundreds or thousands of dollars just to have their careers derailed and then they have to spend all this money fixing it. So yeah, the art always comes first. I, I appreciate the art form, even if it's music that I don't necessarily, I can always appreciate the art that goes into it. Right. Um, but I always try to be a, a, an advocate for the artist. I think it's because of my management background. First and foremost, I was a manager and I was really advocating for my artists and fighting for my artists. And then I grew into the label side. So it's something that I always try to keep the integrity. A lot of my clients, actually almost all of my clients have come to me through an introduction of a friend or word of mouth. We've never sought anybody out. And I think it's the old saying, let your reputation precede you. That's what we try to do. It's, it's all about the integrity and you can make really good money just by being an honest person and being genuine. Yep. Uh, you don't have to scam people out just to make a quick buck. There's no longevity in that. A hundred percent. And I think that's why it's so incredibly important to lead with authenticity, because we're talking about honesty at the end of the day. And there, there 
can be a little bit of fun of creating a character outside of yourself and then being and then playing the role. But a lot gets lost in translation. And it sounds to me like you're expecting honesty and you're hoping for the most authentic, honest to themselves types of artists as well. Do you feel like um, a lot of artists that try to come into your ecosystem quite know the difference between who their true artist self is and who this sort of character they've created of themselves do you see that a difference between that and a lot of the early artists that come to you i do to be honest yeah i do i think a lot of the artists that i've worked with have always been very intuitive and very self-aware on who they are as a person and who they are as an artist mm -hmm. yeah I, I would say the shocking majority are, are <laughs> like that i've been very fortunate to, to work with some amazing artists that share the same beliefs and that's how we go years working together because we, we have that same belief system where it would, and it makes it easier. It just makes it so much easier to work. It doesn't feel like work when you're both equally as passionate about what you're doing. Yep. And what's interesting is that when you look at why you're passionate, and this is in our ideology as a company, when you look at why you're passionate about something, we find that almost always it boils down to about five or six core values and there's some psychology and some science behind what words they choose for these ideologies and core values that could be the pinnacle of how you define yourself because even though we're complex creatures we still are bags of bones we're a lot of solution and sloshing and simplicity oh, yeah. in here too so when you Lots look at and so people ask me all the time like how do i decide who to collaborate with who to work with, who to bring on my team. And I say, have them write down their top five core values and see if they line up with yours. If they do, then you guys have the same litmus test for decision-making and it will be smooth as can be. The compatibility couldn't be higher because at a core foundational level, you're after the same things and you value the same things. And a lot of people don't even know how to identify that within themselves without sitting down for an hour and staring at that sheet of paper. Do you have any exercises or things you've done to with artists who are close, maybe on the cusp of really discovering themselves and embracing their artistry? And maybe you see the potential, but how do you find yourselves in those early days trying to unlock that and help them there? So I send everybody, every artist that I work with, after the first meeting, I send them a questionnaire and I give them homework, but mm -hmm. the questionnaire asks them all about their beliefs and, and their fans and what drives them to make music. And usually after reading that, there's about 20 questions on the sheet. And usually after reading that, I can get a good grasp if this is going to be a mutually beneficial relationship or not. Mm -hmm. But at a minimum, it, it helps me point them in the right direction because I can see where they are, where they want to go and why they want to get there. So, yeah, everyone I work with in the early stages after like our first meeting or so, I send them that. And I have to be honest, it's one of my favorite things to read mm -hmm. because sometimes you don't really you can listen to lyrics and you can get an idea of where that artist is coming from. But when they start explaining how they get their passion to make music and mm -hmm. why they want to do it and what reactions they want to see from fans. It's really cool to dive into the mind of the artist and see really where they want to take their career and how I can help them achieve that. 
Absolutely. And it is the most fulfilling work outside of developing my own career and making the discoveries on my own. And I would say it's even more endearing to see it in others because I've had such a self-indulgent lifestyle already that it's almost, bro, just to even out that karma, you can't live this good without giving <laughs> back. You know what I'm saying? And so then I end up just feeling even better by finding myself in this Let's say if I'm level 50, I like teaching the level 40s and being taught by the level 60s. It's this amazing yes. place to be. And I think that a lot of times the narcissism or the ego or the overconfidence uh, or the skepticism of a lot of up and coming artists to openly collaborate and be vulnerable within the industry is because they think they got to do it alone. A lot of cats think that it's either get a record deal or do it completely solo and there are so many new blends of various types of management and label deals and label services that I guess the easier question might be in the modern music industry, a new artist that's trying to develop themselves, what are some of the snares or cons that you see starting to bloom again and gain power? Do you see any artists getting taken advantage of in this moment in time? And if not just in this moment in time, what are some beginner level sorts of things that artists should be looking out for in the industry? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because recently I've been helping an artist who up until now has been putting out his releases through these digital record labels, some that you would find on like Submit Hub that you would submit to and they would you know distribute your music and do all the marketing. And when I was looking at his deal, they took 100% of everything. And he literally was left with nothing, not even publishing. And he's not the first artist that I've heard this happening to, but when I, it was the first time I actually saw the deal. Was and it I, signed? It was signed, yeah. Ooh. It was signed. And I looked up this label, who I'm not going to mention, but I looked up this label and they had so many releases and i got like this kick in the gut oh my god i can't believe this companies out there that are actually preying on independent artists like this i i think the issue now is that there's so many options that you can choose there's so many avenues that you can travel on to try to get to where you want to be that i think a lot of artists are just confused on where mm -hmm. to go and there's no one size fits all deal so not every deal is great for every artist. I think on the last podcast, we were mentioning 360 deals and how they work for some people, but not for others. For Lady Gaga, it worked fantastic. Not so much for Little Yachty, but I think a lot of artists are really struggling to find what the best avenue is. And it's almost like they're losing focus on the little things like consistency and engaging with fans and mm -hmm. Everybody wants to take a shortcut, but looking at that deal that Arda showed me last week was really an eye-opening thing for me because I didn't know people were doing such crazy deals like that. And that artists were actually signing away ownership of their masters, all their publishing and everything in perpetuity just to get some streams, which we could question whether or not they're actually organic streams too. And whether or not they'll even stay up there. Wow. And it's heartbreaking to see that because to me, that is disgusting. It's You could prey on so many other types of people. Why 
prey on music artists. Like what? It's not like you're reaching into a, a bank vault. We don't uh, traditionally beginner artists don't have much money. They're taking out loans or saving up all year for it. So it just grosses me out when I see people do that and they just see someone on fire with a passion and they go, okay, now I know how to manipulate this person and get them to do anything I want them to do because I know what their passion is. And managers back in the Motown days did the same thing. They'd find out, hey, what's this artist's favorite car? And then they'd take out a lease with their own credit line and then they'd let them drive the car around and then the guy would feel like a rock star. But really he wasn't taking a loss. He just used something he was passionate about to manipulate him, to get him to do what he wanted him to do. They try to dangle the fancy things in front of you, the sparkly watches and all that other stuff to try to get your attention. And then they take advantage of you on paper. And then it turns out that once you're in it, they don't really want you indulging in that stuff. They want you to get to work, go to the radio yep. station, do that photo shoot. You got four yep. hours of sleep before the next show. So you better get moving. And so people have this strange idea that the record deal is the end of the marathon when it's really just the first third of the leg. You'll probably spend 10 years, five to 10 years building up your career before you're at a financial standpoint that most labels, even boutique labels, would see your profit margin as something they'd want to get involved in. Am I wrong in stamping no, a vague timeline on that? You're 100% right. Labels want to see that you're actually generating some revenue before they go and put a bunch of money behind you. I'm right. glad you mentioned about like the deal being like the end all, the be all end all, because so many artists have that thought process. And I know a lot of artists that are signed to major labels who have that thought process and things have not panned out the way that they <laughs> hoped. And I try to hit them with a hard stat that 98% of artists that are signed to major labels never recoup their advance. But the labels don't really care because the money that the top 2% of their roster generates is huge. So mm. it makes up for whatever losses they would have on the other artists. All of that engaging with your fan base, all of that stuff is still very much on you, whether or not you're signed to a major label or you're an independent. But again, I, I'm not super anti-label. Hello. but And I used to think I had to be. I used to yeah. think I had to be anti-label. And it was when I had a bad taste in my mouth about Idol and The Voice and America's Got Talent and some of the deals with That'll Sony that fell through. <laughs> I had some international deals with Sony I was talking to some people about and then they fell through. So I got used, abused, and thrown away more than once, and that's the industry for you. But the thing that I don't think a lot of people realize is that labels at scale, a major label, especially any tributary of the top three, are assembling a business portfolio that makes a spread. And so what you just said was that their top two artists make so much money that it doesn't really matter that the other X percent, basically everybody but the top 1% of their artists signed, aren't even making their advance back, but they monopolize the whole industry. And not only that, but then they can start playing these roles like, oh, we're going to collaborate you with you. And then that's going to be your like going away song because we're bringing a new younger version of you into the roster. And so they've got this whole deck of portfolio of artists that they can manipulate through the airwaves, through the business, monetize in a various amount of ways. But at the end of the day, it's all about just funneling everything to the top. And so people don't realize that you can get signed 
just so you can't release because they have another artist like you. Oh, yeah. Like yep. you could and get I've been there too. I, I've been there too with one of my artists who is signed to Warner. And I'll, I'll say the same phrase that, that I've told people over the years. I think we've made hit records that we'll probably never see the light of day. Yeah, it's a tough pill to swallow. That's why I think my biggest thing, and, and this is what we do at HitScope with our deals, is we let the artists keep creative control. And 99% of deals in the industry will not let you keep creative control because the label always thinks they know what's best because they look at trends. But I like to think my philosophy is if we're signing an artist, it's because we really believe in them. And we really believe in the content that they've put out since up until now. So we let them keep creative control and kind of run and, and do their own thing. And I wish more labels would do that instead of trying to make artists conform to what they think is trendy, but is already a fad that's fading out and they make them run on that. So it's one of the most disappointing things about record deals is just not being able to keep that creative control. But sometimes you'll meet an A&R or something like that that'll really believe in you, Lady Gaga, and they believe in the image that you bring into the table and they'll let you run with it. Yeah, and once again, talking about belief, what do they believe in? They have the same core values. You have some sort of mission statement that is that can unify people and rally people behind you. When her stuff about born this way and different animal rights things that she's done, she's rallied behind these causes, knowing that she's going to negate a huge amount of fans, oh, yeah. but also realizing that she is going to reinforce the super fans in a way that is unbreakable. And she's proven that. And, and obviously she had billionaire funding to help her along the way and is knee deep in that whole Hollywood system. And that's not for everybody because I can tell you, uh, I, I try to warn people about con artists of the industry, but it's not a record label. Isn't the only way you can get conned by any means. And if uh -huh. anything, uh, a record deal, if it's, if the contract is done well and you've looked it over, well, then you, got to just know what the words mean. Get a lawyer to look it over. If you sign something and get screwed over, I, I feel bad for you, but at the same time, do your due diligence. But I would say at the top in the Hollywood scheme of things, you got to play the game, right? You've got to be involved in these different boards, guilds, got to kiss the rings and play that game a lot. And I think that people think that they're going to in, somehow inject themselves into this hundred year established Hollywood system and do it their own way. And the reality is, if you want to do it your own way, you either got to make more money than God and then fight the giants, or you need to take a boutique approach and build your army with super fans. Would you agree with that sort of so, like division? Yeah, a hundred percent. A hot take. I think it, super fans are obviously extremely important, but I think reaching a very broad audience is also very important. I usually tell people when they're running ads that targeting, having a very hyper-targeted fan base is awesome. But if you look at a lot of artists on Spotify, their followers don't really drive all of their streams. It's because they reach such a broad audience and you need that as well for the algorithm's sake. But yeah, it really comes down to who's making it 
there's some artists that are signed to major labels that are broke. Mm-hmm. And then there's people with a thousand super fans that are absolutely crushing it, living out their dream because they own their masters, they're making money, their fans are incredibly supportive. So I guess it comes down to what your goal is. What's making it? Is it the person who signed to a major label that appears to have a lot of fans, but really isn't generating significant revenue? Or is it the indie artist who's owning all of their stuff, is not locked into any deals, that has an incredibly supportive fan base that allows them to live out their dream? And do you think that's the scenario that once people shake the, off the brainwash and let's say they exist in the industry long enough to find some mid to upper level success and they're starting to make some money, when they graduate past those maybe superficial reasons they got into the industry and then they find success, where do most of the artists you've seen settle with where their career lies and why they do it once they've gotten past that initial shock of, oh, this is what the industry is. It's funny because I've seen a couple of different phases with artists that I've worked with. And it's in the beginning, it's all about, I'm going to, I'm going to make the music that I make regardless of what's trendy. This is just for the fans. And then I always see like when something pops off and it's working, okay, I'm going to capitalize off of this Mm -hmm. by making something similar. And then, and then I find that a lot of artists, once they, you know, hit that point where, you know, they know they're going to pay all their bills for the rest of their lives, just off of residual income, Mm -hmm. that it always reverts back to the music being the most important thing. And they just want to get their message out there Mm -hmm. and they want to make music that they enjoy. And they stop thinking about whether or not the fans are going to love it. And to be honest, I love that. Yeah. I, I think it was really cool. I don't know if she ever released it, but I heard that a couple of years ago that Rihanna was making a reggae album Mm -hmm. just because she could. Right. And and it's cool. If you get to a point where that's what you want to do and you can do it and you're going to have hundreds of thousands of fans or millions of fans that are going to support it. Why not? Oh, yeah. It's Ed Sheeran did one of the things I'm most jealous of ever. He played in St. Louis at an arena and half the show was all Bill Withers tunes. Just the two of us, Lean On Me, uh, Use Me, all of these, my favorite songs. He's my favorite songwriter, favorite singer of all time. And he got to just go up, be himself, do them in his own version and give a dedication and homage to like someone that he respects more than anyone. And that got back to the man that Mm -hmm. that had to get back to the man. So I love seeing those sort of things where people get to show Oh, I know. And it, it hard background and street performing and just being an enjoyable guy around a bunch of really talented other people. That's just the way that he's finessed his career. And that's the way that he's finessed his career is the way that everyone can finesse their career. Because like you said, once people get to the top of the mountain and they look back and they go, do I still want to even keep creating now that I don't have to? And they go, why do I want to? I want this to be message driven. I want it to be connected. And I want to see how it affects individuals. There's no reason that you got to get to the top of the mountain before that realization. You can lay every brick from day one having that wisdom and having a team of people with that wisdom hey yes we're going to make money but we're going to do it with integrity so that these human beings that you're investing in now are still investing in you 10 years from now and i think that's that's something that took me roughly six to eight years to really 
realize in the industry, not just as a human adult, but in the industry actively working, probably seven, eight years deep, I started going, oh, this is why I'm doing this. And this is why I need to keep doing this. So do you try to instill in artists and try and remind them, hey, these famous cats are still saying it's super fans. These famous cats are still saying it's message driven. Do you try and remind the newbies of that? Yeah, absolutely. And one of my biggest uh, pet peeves is when up and coming artists try to compare themselves to the bigger artists. And it's Justin Bieber put out this kind of song and his fans loved it. And it's, yeah, Justin Bieber can do that. You know what I mean? He's got 55 million monthly listeners. He can do whatever he wants. So I try to keep artists to be genuine to themselves, to their craft, to their music, because that's really when the best stuff comes out, as opposed to trying to hop on the trends and trying to hop on whatever Justin Bieber's doing or or someone else is doing. You don't have to hop on the trends. You could be unique in your own right. And as long as you're consistent and you stick with it, it's going to take off eventually. It's just a matter of sticking with it and not giving up and just being consistent. How do you instill consistency in trying to help these wild-minded creative artists? How do you instill routine in those types of people? I wish I could tell you I had a, a formula. There's a bull really whip somewhere behind you. <laughs> yeah. One of my sayings is I can't bottle up passion and give it to you. I just can't do that. As far as consistency, it's really trying to set a schedule for an artist. That's what's worked best for me so far is trying to create some type of schedule for an artist so that if nothing else, they at least have a list of priorities of things that they know they have to do. And if they know they have to like post at a certain time or release music on a certain day, it's easier to work towards that. But what we try to do is we try to sit on content this way. One of my artists, we just did 10 photo shoots in the last month. And the reason being is because he's in album mode and we want to make sure that as we're building up the release, we have content to go out every other day. So sitting on content has been the biggest thing for us this way. You don't really have to worry about it when it comes time to be posting so that you post something and you're like, all right, now what am I going to post tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Um, which is why that book right behind you is so valuable <laughs> yeah. uh, for artists. But let's yeah, give, the, yeah, let's give him a shout out. We love Leonard. 365 live stream ideas for musicians, a creative reference guide for sharing fun, practical and profitable live streams. I just want to say I got a signed copy. I don't know if anybody else does, but I just want to flex a little bit and mention. Oh, man, that hurts. It ain't signed. (laughs) This ain't signed over here, but I got the first edition. So these got a small misprint in them that will make them recognizably the first edition forever. So now uh, I'm jealous. Now I'm jealous. And now I got to get a signature, but I'll, I'll be traveling a lot soon, man. One thing that I've realized more and more recently, and I guess I just never put it together, but I've always been a big believer that this country is so much bigger and more diverse than people can possibly realize unless they've traveled it. Okay. I've gotten uh, robbed in Kentucky. I've uh, not in Kentucky. I always say that Alabama. I've, I've pet giant Clydesdales in the Kentucky bourbon trail. And I've been all over the place. But one thing that I started realizing is that the mentality of the music industry across the country seems to be really compartmentalized. 
And so I'm curious if label mentalities are the same way. So I was talking to someone in publishing recently, and they said, really, there's three forms of thought. There's New York, Nashville, and LA. Is, are there noticeable differences between the ideologies on how labels operate according to region of the country? I don't think so. No? No, I, I don't think so. I think um, the only one I feel like Nashville is like its own world for the music industry mm. in a good way. Nashville, I find to be very tight knit, whereas New York and L.A., not so much. But I do love working with Nashville artists because I do find that the industry in general is just so open to collaboration. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in L.A., it's what are you going to be able to do for me if I right. collaborate with you? And New York is just a very cold place. But, but I think I think the label philosophy is it, it really label by label. I talk to so many other label heads and it's crazy. Sometimes people can't fathom the idea that we give out these artist friendly deals. And they're like, what do you mean? You're not taking like ownership of the copyright and stuff. And it's so like unfathomable to them. Mm. So f- for me, it's really cool seeing how other people view the industry. Mm-hmm. And taking that and just being cognizant of it when, when you're making decisions for your own label. But yeah, I, I think, God, every label person I've ever met has such a different philosophy. Mm-hmm. It, it really is out there. It, it depends who you talk to and what kind of label. The major label philosophy is so different than the indie label philosophy. Yeah. The digital philosophy is different than the indie label philosophy. There's, there's so much to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because so much of our philosophy of money making and a lot of the company culture is combined because of our team is so diverse. But at the same time, there's like underlying themes of ultra high integrity, ultra authenticity, acceptance and coexistence. Another thing that we always press is like meditation. Like I'll even put meditation in some certain situations where there's homework, where somebody's about to, and especially making a booking call, because with us being consultants, I'm not making the calls for people. I'm not click and send for people. And that's an interesting sort of difference between our business setups, but they're both under the same concept of let the artists do what they want, offer them guidance and make sure you're working with people willing to hear the guidance and make something incredible from it. You make the most exaggerated, fantastic, high quality music and impact that you possibly can. And I think a good way to start figuring that out by, by people is if you're talking about going into a record deal or going into any situation where you might be adding to your team, let's say it's a booking agent, okay? And you're walking in there and you're cranking, you're young, you're attractive, everything else. You should be looking at that as a two-way job interview. It is not just a desperation, please help me sort of thing. Because if you have any true belief in your talent, then you are literally coming to a negotiation table. You're not really, you shouldn't be looking at it as trying to get a job. And that kind of brings me into this negotiation sort of mentality. And maybe I'm just such a consultant, but how much wiggle room are there or how much, let me rephrase this. How much wiggle room within the traditional record deal is there for the new hot revenue streams 
of 2021 and beyond, live streaming, influencer deals, brand ambassadorship, are those things being included in record deals and how flexible are they getting? Some of them, 360 deals are, I don't want to say they're good. 360 deals are interesting because you can negotiate a lot of different aspects of it. So if you have a really strong touring history, you can negotiate a smaller percentage on shows. If you have a huge digital revenue stream or, or a lot of digital income already coming in, you can generate a smaller percentage on that. But for the most part, it really depends on the label. 360 deals are still the number one type of deal that's going around right now. Mm -hmm. It's still what the labels are doing. There is some wiggle room, but it really depends on the leverage that you have. And that's why I tell artists, like so many people who think they're ready for a record deal or want a record deal, that a record deal is not going to help you with what you're currently doing. The goal should always be take what you're doing on a micro level and then you can use a label to take it to a macro level. Mm -hmm. That should always be the goal in trying to get a deal. But yeah, it, it really depends on the type of deal. Traditional deals that are 12 to 16 points, there's really not a lot of wiggle room in that. And it's disappointing because I can't for the life of me think as a label, I would never even feel right taking 85% of an artist's income or 88% of an artist's income in perpetuity. And copyright law gives you the right to buy it back in 35 years at an undisclosed price. But it's really crazy to me. That's how a traditional label works. Do you see people in the industry trying to wave the flag of what some of these legacy ideologies and maybe some antiquated music industry arrangements are? I know Kanye was screaming about it for a while. Are there other artists trying to get this word out and get things changed? Yeah, there, there definitely is. Russ is a huge one, but you have to look at, at, at Russ's history too. So I had never heard of Russ until There's Really a Wolf, that album, or mm -hmm. Zoo. But what he did was he was so consistent. He was putting out songs you know, on SoundCloud and everything else for years. He was dropping like a song a week or something like that, a song every two weeks. But then he signed, because he had so much leverage, he signed a great deal with Columbia for two albums. And that's when he had like his first hit songs. They took what he was doing on a micro level and they brought it to a macro level and they showed everybody in the country for it. And so he had pull the trigger. He had a couple of really big songs. And that's when I found out about Russ. But what was cool was his deal was only for those two albums. And from what I understand, he had those two albums like already recorded before he even signed the deal. So he was oh like, my God. oh, that's now, awesome. And what he negotiated was to get his masters back after a certain amount of time. And then he used the label to catapult him. And now he releases everything through TuneCore again because he keeps all of his income. So I think he's a great proponent for being an indie artist. Kanye, that whole situation was so interesting to me, <laughs> especially when he posted his deal. I read those every word for days. I was like, man, this uh -huh. is so cool. And one thing that Kanye leaves out is how much money he got for those deals. Now, I'm not saying giving away 84% of your, of your income is a good thing, but he, this guy was getting $5 million per music video as an advance. That is just insane. That is absolutely insane. The music videos he was putting out, Runaway, were like Oscar-worthy performances. 
Yeah, absolutely. Before Childish Gambino came along and had his iconic This Is America and maybe Beyonce's, was it Single Ladies or maybe Crazy in Love? There haven't been too many crazy iconic music videos that I've seen in the past five, 10 years outside of maybe those major three. Yeah, a lot of, it's crazy how much a major label will spend on a music video. Mm -hmm. Um, And you don't have a say on whether it's a good idea to spend it on that or not. One of my artists, they made us do a video that cost us $300,000. Yeah, that's all I'll say about that. But uh, okay, let's talk about that for just a second. Okay, so this is a part. Now, I want to talk about this really quickly, just put it put a a kind of a nail in this. And then I want to talk about some of the beneficial parts of a record deal and why working with you is quite a bit different than a lot of the doomsayer shit that we've been saying already. Right. Because, yes, there are a lot of money grubbing people that just see something beautiful and they want to gaslight it, folks. They want to squeeze it for all it's worth and take the money. (laughs) But that's why we're talking to Danny and not those guys, because this is a good dude here. And when you put the artist forward, I truly believe you get better quality stuff. One part about record deals that people don't understand, and I just want to outline the basics of what a record deal is. You've mentioned an 84% 360 deal, which basically means if you make 100,000, they take 84 and you keep the rest. Now, a deal of that caliber is oftentimes, from my experience, going to give you an advance and then a yearly salary kind of on the underground to pay you back that money. Now, if you get a $2 million record deal, that means that you are getting $2 million in advance to make that money back and then be a long-term employee or artist of the company. Am I getting this right so far? Yeah, pretty much. I think in layman's terms, that's probably the best way to explain it. Okay, and then... The benefits on your end of taking this giant loan with a lot of strings attached is that you inherit the infrastructure of the business, the network, the man hours, the labor, the payroll, the HR department, the booking agent connections, the sync connections, the playlisting know-how, the digital marketing gurus within their scheme. So whenever you're looking at a record deal, and you're looking at a record label as, is this the guy for me? Are these the people for me? I'll use myself as an example. I'm an artist that has a giant Swiss cheese hole in my streaming career. My streaming career, I have super fans that have powered me in huge financial ways. And I made a lot of money, but I made virtually less than $5,000 in my life off of streaming and off of probably under 10 grand in overall record sales but I have made tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands in my music career. For me, someone, a record label that I would be incredibly attracted to would be one with virtually nothing to offer in the realm of booking because I am a booking professional and can book myself all day. I can't get videos to go viral um, uh, that I do myself. My team can now, thank God. And so this is me if I didn't have my team, basically. So if I were looking at a label as an artist that I am, I would want to find somebody that has the playlist connections, that has the sync connections, that can motivate me and help me navigate through the landscape of the place that I have a blind spot. And I think that a lot of artists don't realize that proprietary blend that a record label has of its personal strengths 
is why you should choose one label from the next. Yeah, someone might have a bigger hammer to swing because they're some billionaire funded label. But then again, throughout the industry, there are certain personalities that just carry a certain amount of respect or a certain atmosphere, or there's a certain this, if, if they're working with Danny, they're on time, right? That's so that sort of stuff. So what in your proprietary blend of strengths as a label and a music group, do you think sets you aside from others? I think first and foremost, it comes down to strategy. It's amazing how, I don't want to say how poorly major labels market artists, but how much money it takes them to market these artists. <laughs> I know. For us, it, it, a music video that a label would pay $300,000 for, we can film for 2000 bucks with an incredibly like, incredibly reputable team Mm -hmm. but i you touched on something that is exactly what we do and we don't take a piece of touring or a piece of shows and we don't book shows for our artists now that's not to say that i get we were talking about rockville i had an opportunity to get a band onto rockville obviously that's something that i would give to my artists first and foremost Mm -hmm. but we're not taking a percentage of shows we're not touching their merch we're not even touching most of their publishing or their songwriting royalties it's really just recorded music Mm. and getting it out there so if you're an artist who's doing shows maybe a major label is not good for you but maybe a label like us is because we give our record deals are primarily licensing so we control the copyright for a period of time and then you get it 100% back. You don't have to pay anything. Hmm. Uh, another thing that's different is a lot of major labels recoup. You're still responsible for paying that money back. We don't do that. The advances we give are strictly for marketing. And the reason we do that is because I've seen what artists spend their advances on. It's not just for marketing, but it's strictly for marketing because we know what we can do. We know how far we can stretch a dollar. And we know how much of a reach we can have. But a lot of it comes down to connections too. My business partner, Richard Nash, was the senior vice president of Sony Music for many years. He was a vice president of Capitol Records for many years and one of the heads of Sony Red and Elektra Records back in the day too. And Richard is, Richard knows everybody. Richard can walk into someone's office, an executive without having an appointment, and instantly have a meeting. (laughs) And it's great to have people like that because they can introduce you to people who can really help a label scale to a bigger scale. And he facilitated the deal that we did with Sony and The Orchard for distribution. And I've been seeing a lot lately, going back to that agreement that the artists that I've been working with signed for the digital label. One thing that really stood out to me was that they were distributing through DistroKid. And it's why use a label that's distributing through DistroKid because there's nothing wrong with DistroKid or TuneCore or anything like that. But but it's just too many cooks in the kitchen. There is. And quite frankly, when it comes down to reach, those those aggregators are really only putting you in about 70 markets max where signing with someone like Sony in the orchard and having major label distribution albeit through an indie label like ours, it puts you in about 265 markets. Mm. So the reach is much bigger. We were assigned a Spotify label relations manager 
who we work with on every single release and we go over our strategy with them. Apple Music label relations manager who we work with. So it's really those introductions are incredibly invaluable. But yeah, I, th I think a lot of it comes down to strategy. A lot of labels don't really care about building the artist fan base. They leave that up to the artist. But what they do is they love to drive traffic. So that's why if you look at a lot of major signed artists, their fan conversion ratios are typically pretty low. It's 18, 20% maybe. And that's because the, the labels are just so infatuated with driving traffic because every stream is four tenths of a penny. So hmm. they drive as much traffic as they possibly can. And they don't really worry about whether or not they're in front of the right people or not. So that's it's something just, that it's we, like image saturation. Basically, they just want to make sure you're familiar. Like, yeah, when you, that's you, it. you can you have an opinion about it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and for us, what we do differently is we really try to build the artist fan base. We try to build super fans through hyper targeted ads on Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, Google, YouTube, Snapchat, TikTok. We pitch to blogs. We don't just throw it out there to thousands of blogs and hope someone picks it up. Right. We, we count on our relationships that we have with certain bloggers to try to get, get them out there and get them on board and get them as excited as we are to be working this release. So that's the strategy for us. And again, we don't take ownership of the masters. We don't touch the merch. We don't touch the publishing or anything like that. It's really just off of recorded music. And the way that I've always looked at it, and the reason why we set up HitScope to begin with is because we wanted our own artists to have, to be able to have the same distribution as a major artist, an artist signed to Sony. We want to make sure that we have the same avenues that they have, all the same access to tools and to be able to really build and scale on a big level. And the reason why we do licensing deals is because I look at it, if I can't make something pop in five years or 10 years, then that, that's on me. Like mm -hmm. I should be able to make something pop off in five years. So that's why we take it. That's why we offer deals like that because it's, e it's not, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's. It's so much more gratifying when you guys are making money together and everybody's satisfied and happy about the deal that they're in and they're excited to be working together because everyone's going to profit, everyone's going to mm -hmm. make good money, and we're both helping each other reach goals. So that's how we approach our label deals with HitScope. We try to make them artist-friendly. We hold ourselves accountable as much as we hold the artists accountable. But that also goes to say that we're incredibly picky with who we sign. It has to be someone who's willing to work harder than the other 98% of the industry because we want them to be that top 2% that always mm -hmm. has consistency and stuff. But I think that's the biggest difference between us and a major or us and a lot of other indies is that we don't overreach. I think if you're an artist who's typically done well on your own or with the small team that you have, then we're a good label for you because we could take you to that next level. And it's funny because I, I said to one of my artists, Michael Constantino. And my, Michael's had, we've had incredible success over the years. We just surpassed a billion streams across all platforms. We've been fortunate to do shows with Miley Cyrus, travel the world with Marshmello. We've done so much cool, cool shit together with him. And I told him, I said, I said, I look at Hitscope as a stepping stone label. And he said, really? He goes, I don't. 
And when he said that, it was interesting because this is someone who's been offered a lot of deals, but never wanted to conform, never wanted to become another statistic on a, on a major roster. Mm-hmm. And he decided that he wanted to stay with us and just put it out because we're generating good revenue and he's happy with the team that he has. It's people that we've come up with over the years. So I guess we're like a stepping stone label until we're not. Some artists may choose to, once our deal expires or whatever, go and sign to Universal or something. And that's totally cool. Great. I think that shows a love for the art because in this, we're the exact same way. Our most typical program is 12 weeks. The idea is that I want to achieve a transformation for you in that amount of time so that you can fend for yourself in this industry and decide if you want to work with me forever. You know what I mean? That's why I like having these 90 day agreements because A, you need a minimal amount of time to make any measurable change. Three months minimum is the amount we need to really do the type of change we want to do. And two, you need to set up, protect yourself, try some short-term arrangements or maybe even a, a project by project sort of basis with people before you decide to sign that long-term contract. Really make sure that you can, that you see, hey, is this... Are the people I'm trying to be a team on, are they mentally healthy? What's their relationships look like? Does it seem like the lights are flickering? Are they cleaning their bathrooms a lot? Are people unhappy working here? There's so many different ways you can decide what the quality of a long-term arrangement can be with somebody. But like I said, to me in the industry, it all comes down on who's going to help you become the best version of yourself. And that could be profits, that could be super fans and human engagement and getting your message out. But I feel like there's a pretty go-to blend of all of those things. Be more, be in the upper middle class and for bare minimum and get to have hundreds of people sing your songs. Because early on in my career, the whole reason that I wanted to start down this path was because one acoustic guitarist in St. Louis named Ernie Halter. And I became an instant super fan. And I just thought to myself, if I could mean that much to anybody in this career, in this lifelong career, let's say I do it for 40 years and I affect someone like that and get them to pick up a guitar, mission accomplished. Why settle there? Why not use AI and strategy and marketing and a really intuitive team and incredibly authentic content and only assemble those guys like that could be the person you could be doing nothing but creating that person and so now that's what i go for and i've realized that i've just i've generated maybe nine or ten of me's now and it feels amazing because that was the bucket list that was the okay hit me with a car now i did it (laughs) but now i just keep doing it and i've it's interesting that you say the people at the top of the mountain almost always return to the message And the message for almost everybody is connect with each other, help each other heal and have a good time. And that's to me what the whole music thing's about. I know typically you don't have open calls for artists and stuff like that, but walk me through in general, what types of artists you enjoy working with? Who's your ideal type of artist and how do they, how do they present themselves in a way that would show them, show you their strengths? So if let's just paint this picture, there's an artist that is maybe on their second album, been DIY underground, started making 20 to 30 grand a year off their music, and they want to look presentable to you and possibly have the opportunity of being considered 
for a deal? What does that process look like and what are you looking for? So for me, the, the first thing is work ethic because I've made the mistake over the years of working with some artists who I've worked harder than. <laughs> and I realize like that just does it just never works out. So work ethic is really the most important thing. And I think in the last couple of years, I've put together such a great team of artists who all work just as hard, if not harder than I do. So work ethic is really the most important thing. Having a proper perspective is really important. I've had artists come to me and they've had a $10,000 budget and they're like, I want to put it, I want to put this out. I want to chart you know, within the top five on billboard and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, if everyone could do that for 10 grand, everybody would. So having a proper perspective of what it takes and how much, how many sacrifices you have to make in, in this industry is another important thing. But really just knowing your numbers, knowing your fan base is so important. If I ask you what your fans are into, you, you should be able to tell me. You should be able to give me some kind of psychographics on who your fans are. Mm. But I love, I had one artist, Michael Lanza, who when we first started working together, it was crazy because it was at a time when I said that I wasn't going to be taking on any more management clients. Mm -hmm. And he kept playing song after song for me. And I was like, man, this, every song sounds awesome. Like, this is so cool. Uh, so we started talking. And once we started talking, he was telling me like his engagement rate on every platform. He was telling me like how much work he was doing, what his strategy was for every platform, telling me how many playlists he was on, what his playlist reach was, his conversion, his conversion ratio on Spotify. And within our first time meeting, I was like, I, I'm going to work with this kid. And it's been amazing. We've been working together for a little over a year and we've had 4,000% growth over the last year. We've gotten some huge sync placements. Um, nice. We ended up charting number 23 on the Billboard dance chart. We, we've done such cool stuff together because he was just so prepared. And I'm a sucker for that. I, I love it. I love when an artist does half of my work for me in our first meeting if you can show me stuff like that's a huge win for you yeah i'd like to point out two points you said number one show being able to show your real numbers and knowing the difference your stream count but wow. actual more profound numbers there are certain insights that are not made equal to other insights the conversion rates you were talking about open rate on your email newsletter list, metrics on your email newsletter list. If you got a fan subscription, what do those tier, what do those tiers look like? And what's your profitability there? What's your engagement during your live streams? There's so many ways to look at the data and it tell a profound story of where there's gold being just waiting to be struck. In addition to the authenticity and the ability to tell your numbers, you also said, I like people that do half my work for me. And I know what you mean, and I'm going to reframe it so that people know what you mean. <laughs> There's a level of when you want to work with people in the industry that can really make shit happen. There's a certain amount of pay, uh, not payola, but there's a certain price point that you're going to have to get beyond, okay? And a lot of people don't understand this because there's three main financial tiers of the industry that I've seen so far in my own career. That is, number one, the type of 
passion-driven, barter-driven types of careers, right? Hobbyists that aren't really making any money, but they got a lot of network. They got a lot of connections and stuff like that. And then maybe they start making some money. And once they start making money, they start paying for some stuff. They start paying for mixing and mastering. They start paying for uh, maybe this marketing campaign or outsourcing this content creation to a virtual assistant or logo on Fiverr, whatever. They're measuring in hundreds. So now you've graduated up to measuring in hundreds. Here's the sad fact, folks. And it's not sad if you just know it to be true. After you start measuring in hundreds, you have to start measuring in thousands, like in two and three and $4,000 at a time. Because once you start dealing with people that can really move and shake in the industry, they don't measure in hundreds anymore, folks. You look at what their theoretically a theoretical hourly rate is, it's 225. People are on retainers like doctors and lawyers once they know how to navigate this stuff. So yes, be weary of the snake oil salesmen that are overcharging, but also know that the other side of the coin is if you want people that really give a shit and can make moves, you're going to have to be in their financial realm and be able to move that type of money. Would you agree with that, that sort of tear down of the progression of price point? Yeah, a hundred percent behind the scenes. I've always done a lot of A&R who I'm able to take on for A&R is really largely dependent on their budget. Mm -hmm. And I hate telling artists how much it takes because they always get discouraged. Mm -hmm. If you have a $50,000 budget, it's really not enough for an A&R, an experienced A&R to really move the needle. It's, it's more like 150 grand mm -hmm. to do that. But, but again, and that's not really counting what you're paying an A&R person to help you. I have a lot of people who reach out to me asking me about consultations. And when I tell them, like, I charge $250 an hour for consultations, they're like, oh man, that's not super affordable. And I'm like, I know that's, it's not supposed to be. Right. Um, I'm busy, bro. Yeah. That's what my time is worth. If you want to take an hour out of my day, I need at least that to, to make it worth it. I would love to work with everyone who's ever contacted me. I would love to, but I'd have to clone myself a couple of times. But that's why you do podcasts. That's why you're here. That's exactly. why these are so scalable, informative, gifting knowledge back to the artists. That's what you're doing right now. So you're not always charging for your expertise. <laughs> no, 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 I just no, want to no, make no. sure you understand, especially the last Mike podcast, even my dad listened to it and was like, I learned so much and he doesn't know a damn <laughs> thing so about cool. the industry. Yeah, that is so cool. He's like, yeah, Danny seems I, cool. <laughs> I, I do love helping artists out, but I, I do have a full plate between Hitscope as a management company, Hitscope as a record label, the app that I work with, Breaking Hits. There's no shortage of work for me to do. So, yeah, it, it really, you have to, if you want someone who's very experienced to work on your team like you you have to make it worth it for that person mm -hmm. you, know, you have to compensate them for their time and that's why even i've been approached by some major label signed artists and one thing about me is i won't take on a client for management who's signed to a major label that front loads their deal so if you got a really big advance I'm sorry. I just don't really want to work for charity before hopefully you recoup. Right. So it's, you have to make it worth that person's time. You have to show them what you're bringing to the table to make them as equally excited about getting into this business relationship with you. 
And that's industry-wide. A lot of people don't realize that even traditional management is usually consultant combined management. So it's, it's almost like whenever you work in sales and if you don't sell X amount this month, then $300 this month gets pulled out of the account to cover my costs. So there's always a bare minimum retainer that managers are still going to need to get from you. Even if you go through a divorce and a depression for three months and you can't make music, they're going to still be pulling money out of your account because they got to pay their coffers and their labor costs. And I don't think people know that. No. And when you, a lot of like big managers, unless they've been with the artist for a long time, a lot of them do get salary. Uh, The guy who was managing Michael Jackson, I think was getting like a million dollars a year uh, to be his manager, which is amazing. But when you look at if he was getting 20% of what Michael Jackson was making, that's a crazy percentage. But yeah, man, not a lot of people want to work for free. And I feel like I've paid my dues. I've worked for free for so long to the mm-hmm. point where I was evicted from my apartment 10 years ago and I used to have to leave my oven door open to catch heat because I yeah. couldn't afford the heat bill. I'm at a point where it, there's got to be a mutually beneficial relationship there. Yeah. And everybody is, and no matter what sort of relationship you get in within the music industry, what I tell people is I recommend this. The thing that will adjust that price point and the the thing in my life that adjusts the price point is, do I believe in your message? If you can work with people that are truly invested in your message, then that required saying, I don't want to work for free. I don't want to work for free unless we're on the same team with the same message. I got, we're on a mission from God wrapped around my (laughs) wrist from the blues brothers. It's a blues brothers tattoo. Oh, do you really uh, have it? That's awesome. Oh yeah. Yeah. The blues brothers are right there. You see them. I'm getting Elwood on my knuckles soon. And uh, when I find other people that truly have just been lit on fire with this X factor for music and they do it with integrity, goodness, and connection at the forefront, I'm much more willing to be flexible on my pricing. I'm much more willing to throw them an extra discount on a consulting because I know they're going to bring joy to other humans. And that's its own currency to me. So find people that are invested in things that aren't just dollar signs. Work with people that want to collaborate because of the emotion, the atmosphere, the culture, the message, the values. And then these toggles of seemingly unattainable people suddenly are colleagues, friends, and you're on the same team. Let me ask you this. Whenever you're going out and you're assembling your team, what are some things that you look out for in folks that you want to hire to hit scope in a non-artist capacity? People that are smarter than me. (laughs) That's always... So we... My business partners... Uh, Richard Nash is one of them who I spoke on. I also have Neil Collins. Neil is the founder of Breaking Hits. It's an app where you can rate music and send it to feedback to industry professionals and DJs and influencers. Neil's background, he worked with LMFAO for a really long time, Danny Ocean, Mm. some really impressive artists. And we found that our visions aligned so well that it almost, it made perfect sense for us to work together. So that was one thing. My marketing team, for the longest time, 
I met with probably 50 to 60 different marketing companies because it was something where as we were scaling, we had to outsource or we could hire within. But I always considered myself to be really good with ads. So we were getting a really low cost per conversion rate. And every marketing company I talked to was giving me, was estimating a hire. So I'm like, all right, I'm not going to work with them. And then I found these kids who we had a couple of meetings and they like built their own tools for Facebook to analyze audiences and their cost per conversion was like 25% of mine. Mm. So right away I was like, how do I hire you? (laughs) Um, Because it impressed me so much. It blew me away. But above all else, I always try to look for people with industry experience because I think it's really tough to introduce, to get people's feet wet in the music industry. If you haven't worked in the music industry before and dealing with an endless sea of rejection and stuff like that, it's hard to get people on board, but the work ethic is really the most important thing. If you're willing to do the research and you're willing to work hard and think outside the box, then that's always somebody that I I want on my team. Um, Someone who thinks the same, but also differently than I do, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense at all. Oh, it totally does. Me and Evan are like, we have such a brotherly connection that it's just, I will call him out on his bullshit and vice versa. You know what I mean? And oh, yeah. so we need that because you get tunnel vision, you get excited, you need somebody to have a system of vetoes and checks. Yeah. And it's crazy, like not to get too into it, but I'll tell you this, because I think a lot of people will be able to relate I was negotiating a huge deal that I was really excited about uh, a couple weeks ago. And at the midnight hour, it got ripped and everything fell apart. And I'm not going to lie. I was, I was a little beaten up over it. And my business partner was like the complete opposite when he gave me a huge kick in the ass and literally like 20 minutes after feeling devastated, like I've lost everything. We were right back and we ended up closing a deal, not as big, but we ended up closing another deal right after. So it's really having people on your team that are just going to constantly uplift you and people that really do believe because imposter syndrome is a very real thing in the music industry, whether you're a creator or an executive or whatever you do. I mentioned there's an endless sea of rejection. You're going to get told no a million times uh, before you get told yes. So having people around you that understand that is super important too. And my business partner was the perfect example of that because it takes a lot to get me down, but he kind of kicked me in my ass and really brought me back up so that right after that, we were doing the best work we've ever done to make sure that you close the next deal perfectly. Yeah, man, like choosing the right people to be on your team is, it's so difficult. It's almost more difficult than choosing like people to be in like your inner circle. Because you have to trust these people, even with like your finances, it's, you got to be comfortable about all being on a business account and stuff like, well, it's it's interesting that you divide the two because I haven't had the luxury of having my inner circle and my business associates separate in years. I work so much. If I'm not working with you, I'm probably not tight with you. Like even the people that I'm close with that I'll go for drinks tonight, they hire me for gigs all the time. So it's to exist in my ecosystem. There's always a cover charge. It's kind of bad, but it's kind of true. And once it becomes a lifestyle thing, once you start working with your best friends and you find this similar mission, 
if you can find a way to make your lifestyle and your music business seamless, that's whenever the real changes start to happen. Because you're always the same person. You're always in the opportunity lane. You're always in line for new networking opportunities and just always having those conversations, whether it's for fun, whether it's for business, there's really no difference anymore for me now. You know? No, I feel you to an extent. And then uh, maybe I need to develop that better. (laughs) You know what it is? A lot of a lot of my closest friends are people who are just they were all in the music industry at one point. Mm -hmm. Then they all kind of went separate ways, started families, like whatever. They're just not in the industry anymore. But yeah, I'd agree with you. As far as like being in LA, if you ever see me out, I'm usually out with people who I work with right? um, or my artists. I take my artists out all the time too. And we'll go and scout other artists for me Mm -hmm. to sign and I'll bring them as like a walking business card. Yeah, if you're not living like that, like how much free time do y'all have? Because like I'm trying to move mountains. So I'm coming equipped with business cards and the type of people I want to be associated with wherever I'm going, which usually is just me solo. I'm usually pretty big enough (laughs) personality to nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, man, I always enjoy talking to you. I love that that you are so conscientious about being upfront about the dangers and some of the I guess, preconceived notions of the record label industry and what to look out for, and also show that you're different by putting the artists forward. And I think that you and I both agree that is the best way to get the most results. Give artists freedom with expert level guidance and see what mountains they can move. And you do that on the record label and the record group side. And I do that on the music business consultant side. And one of the reasons I love having you on the podcast, not only are you a wealth of knowledge, but those aren't competing ideas. Those artists can even fluctuate between the two. You could have somebody that you're working with developing their streams and they're signed here and everything else but they don't know a damn thing about how to create a merchandise line, a fan subscription, or really get on a content calendar. Suddenly they're clients of both of us and they're still, guess what? They're the connecting factor, retaining all creative control. Oh yes. So so I know we haven't quite done too many client crossovers yet. I see them coming in the future. I've heard some rumblings. I I see some things (laughs) happening soon. So I'm really excited about that. But if you got any passing words for the music industry cats, whether they be agents or aspiring artists and how to get in touch with you and hear more about what you do and follow your story. Yeah. So my personal email is Danny at hitscope.com. And I am trying to respond to as many emails as possible these days, but yeah, so we're actually, we're going to be taking on some new people to work with. We are going to be expanding because we are scaling the label. We just signed four new artists. So there is going to be a lot more work for us to do. But yeah, hitscope.com is the label. We have about 75 new releases coming out in the next couple of months. Whoa. Um, Yeah, it's really, now that the world is open again, we're really trying to get out there again and really have a fun, we need a fun year. So we're trying, we're really trying to make the most of that. Um, But yeah, we are going to be looking for some new people to bring on. We are going to be expanding. I definitely see a lot of crossover with AC. I was talking to Leonard Mm -hmm. and I think that there's some very fruitful partnerships in the, in the, in the working here. 
But yeah, man. And I love that you said it's not competing ideologies either, because it's funny. I've actually passed on clients who I've recommended to other labels who I think could actually do more for them. So it's never competition. The music industry is big enough where we can all share clients and everything else. But again, th thanks so much for having me on. I, I can't praise Artist Collective enough for what you guys do. And, and it's always a pleasure chopping it up with you. Absolutely. Back at you, man. And hey, you got my dad to listen to one of these podcasts. So <laughs> that was a big win for me. And he got the kind of that was his introduction to seeing what what we do and what we talk about and stuff like that. I always learn something from you and have a good time. I'm a little jealous that you got to have some lunch with Leonard. So I'm going to have to do that. And have I got to get Leonard to sign this book, not to mention meet both of you guys for lunch someday. Yep. So I'm gonna be on the road come November. So maybe I'll run into you, man. Let's do it, man. I would love to. Cheers. You have a great day, man. Keep doing, keep on the mission. You know what I'm saying? Always. The mission never ends. True that. See you, brother.